In his book, An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth, Chris Hadfield tells about one of the things that every astronaut had to do before they could get to go in space. Every astronaut had to choose two escorts for their families. That is, you had to choose another astronaut who would be there to kind of be a a surrogate spouse. Someone who would be able to stand with your husband or wife, the immediate family and the kids, and they'd also be there for the extended family and friends. You see, one of the things that NASA had learned was whenever it came to launch date, boy, everybody you knew wanted to suddenly come. All your relatives, your family, all the friends. It was a great and exciting time, but they wanted the astronaut to be focused on the mission, on going wherever they were going, and they had to be in quarantine. And so they learned that the families needed someone to step in and to help with all those things like you're ready to go and somebody has forgotten their security pass clearance back at the hotel. Someone needs to take the Starbucks order to go for a Starbucks run. Somebody needs to count heads when everybody gets on the bus to take a tour of NASA. No, you needed someone to always be there to just help take care of the family that was going on. But then more important, you needed someone to be standing by your spouse when you came walking out to go to your space shuttle and to say goodbye. You needed someone to stand beside you when they lit that rocket and it began to rumble and you go shooting into space. You needed someone to be by you once the mission was going on and life went back to normal. Someone to help with the day-to-day things. You needed someone to stand beside you when you're waiting so anxiously for them to come and to land safely. You needed someone to stand by you in case they got news that you had died. It was their responsibility then to plan the funeral. Their responsibility to stand beside that spouse in an open grave. Their responsibility to help start trust funds for the children's education. No, choosing to be an escort brought with it some very serious responsibilities. And Chris tells about when he was at Edwards Air Force Base training as a test pilot. It was there that he got to know um, Rick Husband. Rick Husband was also at Edwards Air Force Base training to be a test pilot. And the two of them became fast friends. It turned out that, that Rick was married, a couple kids. He was a man of great faith. They really got along so very well. So much so that Rick was chosen first to be an astronaut, and then Chris would be chosen to be an astronaut, and they would still be such good friends. Then in 2001, when Chris got to go up in the space shuttle, he asked Rick, will you be the escort for my wife? And he did all the things that he needed to do. He was wonderful. And so 2003 came along, and now Rick had the opportunity to go up in the space shuttle. He actually had been named commander of that flight. And so it was when the family all came to Florida. They were so excited to be there to watch this rocket go off. All the family was there, the friends. They had their escorts, and they were standing beside his wife, Evelyn, when it rumbled into space. He was commander of the space shuttle Columbia. It would be circling for 16 days up in space, doing all kinds of experiments very successfully. Finally, the day came to come down, and all the family had come back to Florida. They were there on the runway. They have a big clock that says minus 16 minutes, minus 15, minus 14. It counts down till you know the shuttle is going to come in and land. 
Evelyn and the kids, they had a picture in front of that countdown clock, minus 11, 49, 39. They were all so excited. And it got all the way to zero, and there was no shuttle. And now they stood by the clock at plus one, plus two, plus three. And Evelyn said, I knew something had gone horribly wrong. She was not alone. The escort was standing by. When she received word that the shuttle had broken up over the state of Texas and that seven astronauts were missing and presumed dead. She wasn't alone when she suddenly realized she had to say goodbye. It's good if you don't have to be alone when you say goodbye. This past week, Reverend Greenwald and Reverend Lambert and I were down in Dallas for a business meeting, just a couple days. But while we were there one afternoon, we had about two hours where we headed off to the George Bush Presidential Library. I'd never been there before on SMU campus. I tried once before, but there was a government shutdown. I couldn't get in. So I decided to try a second time. And I have to tell you, it truly was a very inspirational place. We came in to go through displays. One of the first things you see early on in the presidency there is 9-11. You start seeing the planes flying into the towers. You start seeing the grief and hearing what's going on. It really grabs your emotions pulls you back to that day. You relive it again. And then there came on a, a, a Laura Bush where she was giving a talk to the families who were, uh, who were the surviving families of those who had crashed in Flight 93 in the field there in Pennsylvania. She was gathered with the people there in the field and she began to say, we know that many of you were able to call your families from the plane. That you called to say, we know we've been hijacked. We know we're going to die. But we're going to try to do something about it. I just want you to know that I love you. And I love you. She said we heard call after call that was just like that. And she said we know that it was their love that spoke to your loved ones in those moments of fear and uncertainty. So they didn't have to be afraid because of your love. And the reason we gather here today, she said, is so that you will know you are not alone because you are surrounded by our love. And I thought, that's what you and I are doing here today. You and I have come here today so that we can remember the special people in this family of faith who have entered in life immortal. We've come to remember our own families, our husbands and wives and moms and dads, Brothers and sisters and children and friends, we've come together to remember we've had to say goodbye. And it's why we've come as families, and it's why we come as a family of faith to worship, so you don't do it alone. There's something important in that. I think that's what was going on in our scripture lesson this morning, as we read about Paul, and he journeys towards Jerusalem. He is on a ship and he is moving along from port to port. They are letting off goods, picking up goods. And now they've come to Tyre and they've come to offload their goods. And they had there about a week and Paul immediately goes to be with the people of faith, the church there in Tyre. 
Now, you've got to understand, in that day, when you set sail out onto the open seas, it was very uncertain. It was very dangerous. When you set sail, people didn't know if you were ever going to come back or make it safely. In fact, that would be the case that would go on for centuries. It wasn't until the 1600s that more and more people began to sail and for long distances. And it was still so very uncertain, and you would be gone a long time. And that's why in the 1600s, people started to have Boeing Voyage parties. The words literally mean safe journey. They would come to see people off and say, safe journey, until we meet again. That's what the people were doing with Paul that day. They knew they would never see Paul's face again. Several had prophesied and said, don't go to Jerusalem, Paul. If you go, you're going to be put in chains and bound. It is not going to go well. But Paul said, the Spirit has told me I can go to Jerusalem and testify to the gospel. So he was determined to go to Jerusalem. So they knew when they put Paul on that boat, they wouldn't see him again. This was saying goodbye. They wanted to wish him safe journey, knowing they would not see his face on this side of heaven again. So they brought him down to the, to the seashore. And I love how the Bible says they were his escort. It was not good that he would have to be alone. They were his escort, who brought him to the beach, and they knelt in the sand, and they prayed for Paul. And I'm sure they gave God thanks for their love and their relationship, the times they had shared And then Paul finally got on that boat and set sail out into the open seas. And they went back home. It's hard to say goodbye. This morning I want to continue on with this sermon series, The Voyage, Trusting God in the Open Seas. And trust is such an important thing for you and me and why we come as a family of faith when we come to that time of saying goodbye. And we don't want to be alone. Just two things that I want us to to think about today. First of all, when you and I come together today, I can't help but let my mind go back and run for all the wonderful memories and times I've shared with so many wonderful people in this family of faith, as well as people in my own life. You start thinking about all those moments. If you're not careful, all you focus on is what you have lost. How there will come this Mother's Day and Father's Day and there is no card to buy. When you come to Thanksgiving, there will be an empty seat at the table. When you come to Christmas, there will be no presents to be exchanged. It's easy to focus on all that we have lost. But you and I need to understand, because we're people of faith, we can come and also be grateful for all the memories we have made. We are the people who believe in the promise of eternal life, and so we come and we give thanks for the times we have had, for the memories we have made, for the love we have shared. And it's when you begin to give thanks for the love that you have shared, when you don't feel so alone, then there's something that happens for you. You see, what happens is you begin to see the needs of others. And you are then able to reach out and to bless the lives of others. And when you bless the lives of others, it's the best way to honor the ones who have died. These people on the beach who were praying for Paul and thinking of the times they shared, I'm sure they went home. And when they went home, they thought, together we've been called to start the church. 
because of our faith in Christ, we're going to start the church. And to honor Paul, we will try harder than ever before to share God's love and bring hope to the world. The best way to honor those that we love is in the midst of our grief to see others who are in need and to bless life. And I tell you something else. It will do something for your own soul as you seek to bless others in the midst of your own grief. I came across a fascinating story recently about a, a lady named Sona Deshani. Sona Deshani. It turned out she was born in Iran. She grew up in a very loving, close Muslim family there in Tehran. She was a beautiful girl, very smart. Graduated from the university with a degree in engineering. Then she got her master's. She wanted to get her Ph.D. She got married, and she and her husband came to the United States. They went to Los Angeles because he had some relatives there. She wanted to go to school here in the United States, and she finally got accepted at Michigan Tech University, just north of Detroit. And there she was going to work on her Ph.D. in engineering. So they hopped in their little Toyota, and they drove all across the country to get settled into their new home. All along the way, she had been staying in contact with her mom and dad by text and by email and by Skype and all those kind of things. And then suddenly all the communication stopped. They didn't understand what was going on. But what had happened was, one night her husband, in a fit of rage, began to hit her. And he beat her and her brain began to swell. She was rushed to the emergency room. They moved her to another hospital with a more acute ICU. The doctors were trying to do everything they could. But they were so afraid the brain was going to continue to swell and cut off the blood supply. And that's why you die. They saw what was happening. The nurses who were working in ICU didn't know anything about this woman. Just a beautiful lady. And so they wanted to find out more about her. And so they began to Google her. And from all of that, they began to find resumes and other things, and her story began to be told. It turned out she knew French, English, Persian, spoke three languages fluently, very smart. It's said that she was always volunteering to cook for charities. She really loved cooking to try to bless and help other people. When she was in high school, she wrote for a magazine and a newspaper and entered a literary contest where she won first place for an article entitled Friendship and Our Differences. She was an incredibly loving, kind, giving person. And now suddenly these people wanted to find her parents. But how do you find them on the other side of the world, 6,000 miles away? The Internet is an amazing thing. And they were able to make contact with them there in Tehran. And they shared the news of what was happening and so then they decided they did something they, they don't do. is so very unusual. Because of the circumstances, they set up a Skype camera, and now the family in Tehran was able to see their daughter, Sauna, as she was dying. And so the mother and father could sit in the living room and keep vigil with them. Brothers and sisters and friends started coming by all hours of the night. They would come, they would pray, they would weep, they would cry. And the nurses kept the vigil sitting right beside her. And now and then her mother would say, Would you stroke her cheek? Would you hold her hand? 
Would you kiss her forehead? Would you tell her how we love her? The nurses begin to do all of the things that this family would have done had they been able to sit right beside her. They were able to see the incredible love these people in that hospital had for their daughter. It was an Episcopal priest who was a chaplain who came and said, If you will send me the prayers to the Father that you want me to read at your daughter's funeral, I will read those prayers. And I promise you that as long as I'm alive, I will make sure that her grave is maintained and taken care of, just as I would if she were my own daughter, a way that you would be proud. And so the family held vigil until their daughter, they had to say goodbye. But this family made a decision that was amazing. Only 1% of people put in this situation make the decision. But they decided to donate her organs. Her heart, lungs, kidneys, liver, pancreas. They made the decision to donate those organs. And suddenly there were seven people who had been dying who received the gift of life. Seven people, five different states. And they were interviewing Sauna's sister and she said, We wanted God to perform a miracle and bring Sauna back to life. But this is a miracle. Sauna gave her life in order to give life. We wanted Americans to know she loved America. We wanted to honor her life by blessing life. The best way that you and I can honor our loved ones that we've had to say goodbye to is by the way that we live. We come together so that we don't have to say goodbye alone. But then when you and I go out, it's how we live that honors those who have died. When you and I seek to live in a way to see the needs of others and to bless them, when we see that in our own struggles, in our own grief, I'm telling you it will do something for your own soul as you honor those to whom we've had to say goodbye. The people knelt on the shore and they prayed with Paul. And I know when they came back to their homes, they couldn't help but think, we will try even harder to be the disciples of Jesus Christ, to start those churches, to do the things necessary to live as people of faith, to honor the way that Paul has loved us too. But secondly, it is so easy to come and to think of all the things that we have lost. But it is choosing to live in a spirit of gratitude, grateful for all the memories that changes everything. How many wonderful memories have we made with the names that we have called here today? How many memories do you share with all those loved ones that you will remember in your heart and call today? Choosing to live and gratefully for all the love you've shared is a conscious decision. We can focus on all that we have lost. Are we going to be so grateful for all that we have had? And it's by living in a spirit of gratitude that you're able to find those who are in need in order to honor those who have died by blessing the lives of others. You know those people who knelt on the beach with Paul, the people who had prayed with him. 
had to go home and sit around the table just like you and I would and begin to say, do you remember when some memories make you laugh and some memories make you cry? But you can't help but sit around and remember and you can choose to give thanks for all the love that was shared. The time had come. Safe journey. On this side of heaven, we know we will never see you again. It's time to say goodbye. We can be grateful for all that we've shared, or we can spend all of our time grieving for all that we have lost. While we were down in Dallas this week, one of the things we were doing was looking at some churches, trying to look at architecture and different ideas as we begin thinking about our church that we are building up in Edmond, St. Luke's Edmond. One of the places we went to was Lover's Lane United Methodist Church. Beautiful facility. And they have an interesting columbarium. Their columbarium is not just a place where you go and place ashes. No, they also have a place for baptisms there in the columbarium. And they have a communion table where they have services of communion. They have lots of different services of life in the midst of their columbarium. And so we went there to look at the symbolism and see what was, how they had done this. And when we were through... We begin to leave and go into the church when suddenly a lady saw us and said, Hello, how are you doing? Do you have any questions? Can I help you? No, no, we're just three pastors from Oklahoma down here looking at your church. It's so beautiful and we're grateful for it. And she goes, Well, I'm in charge of the columbarium. I help all of our families who may be needing the columbarium. I'd be happy to answer any questions you have. We said, Oh, it's so beautiful. We love the symbolism. She said, Yes, it is a very special place to me. My husband has a stone here Remembering him, my son is buried here. It's a very special place to me. And we just kind of stopped and said, I'm sure that it is. It seemed a very spiritual place. Well, she began to talk a little bit about the place, about her son, about her husband. And, and we began to ask her more questions. And then she said, well, to tell you the truth, my pastor, Stan Copeland, he thought my life was rather interesting. He asked me to write a book. So, here's my book. If you'd like it, I'd be happy to sign it for you. I said, all right. I think that's very interesting. I said, but tell me a little bit about yourself. It turned out that years ago, she was married to a man named Jim. They were a young couple. And one day, a knock came on the door for Reverend Dudley Dancer. Dudley and his wife, Sally, had been assigned to start a new Methodist church there in Dallas. And they were out knocking on doors, inviting people to come to church. And they knocked on Jim and Elaine's door and invited them to come. And they said yes, and they became great friends. And then Elaine became pregnant. And Jim said, I'm just telling you right now, I want a little girl. If it's anything other than a little girl, you can just send it back. In the end, Elaine had a boy. They named him Dwayne. And they asked if Dudley and Sally would be the godparents. They were only glad to do so. And so they were involved in each other's life. They would go out to eat. They would go out to have fun. They worked in the church together. The families played together. But then when Dwayne was seven and a half years old, Jim came in and said, I want a divorce. Out of the blue. And they begged him not to go. But as soon as the divorce was through, he married a lady who had three daughters. And he wanted nothing to do with them. He totally stepped out of his son's life. And suddenly it was so hard for Elaine, a single mom, child, 
keep a roof over their head, food on their table. It became so very hard to make ends meet, but she worked so hard and she and her son were so close. And then one day when her son was 16, he came in and said, Mom, you just need to know I'm gay. Elaine said, I didn't know what to do with that. We talked, we cried, we tried to learn. I just got to tell you, there's one thing I was clear about. I loved my son unconditionally. I may not have understood his life, but I loved him unconditionally like I believe God loved me. He was very smart. National Merit Scholar. Went on to Southern Methodist University. Got his degree. Elaine had a good job and she'd been saving and saving. He didn't know it. Dwayne didn't know it, but when he graduated, she said, I have saved money. We can pay cash. We're taking a long trip to Europe. We're going to go see lots of different countries. We're going to shop and eat. The two of us, we've had no vacations while you were young growing up. We're going to have a wonderful time. And so they went on this extended vacation to Europe, and they came back home. And then he got a job with Sanger Harris as a buyer, what ultimately be Foley's. But within the next year, her company was bought, and her position went away, and she lost her job. And now suddenly friends were all saying, boy, I wish you had that money back. And she said, no, I am so grateful for the memories we've made. We will have them for the rest of our lives. It was in 1993. Dwayne's life had been circling out of control. After a while, he started drinking, and then there came the drugs, and then he began to rebel. Finally, he got into rehab. He got straightened out, got back involved in church. She had always stuck by him through all of those days, and now he was in a better place. But in 1993, he came to her and said, I have full-blown AIDS. It was during that same time that Sally developed cancer. And so it was in those days that Dudley and Elaine began to talk about their loved ones and all the struggles they knew as a family. Sally would die so very young. And so it was that Elaine and Dudley now got married in 1996. You know, so perfect that a godfather was now the stepfather for his godchild. And the family of Dudley and Sally, they knew so much to Wayne, they already had a brother and he had sisters and brothers and the families molded together so well. Dudley's family was so excited for Elaine to become that second mom. They were starting to have grandbabies. They wanted a grandmother in the family. And so now she became the grandmother to their children and the mother that they had lost. It was all so good, but Dwayne was going down so fast. There was one of Dudley's children who was in Houston opening a restaurant, and that's where Dwayne was. And as he was getting ever closer, going down and down, they said, why don't we throw a party? We can provide all the food, and he can invite all of his friends, and we can throw a party for him. And some way a chance for people to come by and say goodbye. And so they did, and Elaine and Dwayne... Um, Elaine and Dudley, they went down and, and she took her son and she went shopping and to get him new clothes because he'd gotten so thin, nothing would fit. And they had a wonderful time together. And, and then the night came and she and, and she and Dudley got all dressed up in the waiter's uniforms. They were the maitre d's and they waited on everybody and they had such a wonderful night. 
was a couple days later that Elaine wrote to her son. My darling son, I feel so close to you today. It is going to be hard to leave you. I probably won't be back for a month. We've had such a wonderful visit. Our bistro dinner, our Borders bookstore finds, our new Jewish friends where we bought shirts. I went to sleep twice this visit lying on your shoulder. I do love you so much. Thanks for the memories. It wouldn't be long until Elaine was back and Duane was growing weaker and weaker. But she would be with him when it was time to say goodbye. He died in 1998. She still had such a great love for Dudley and his family. But Dudley developed Parkinson's disease. And he died when he was only 70 years old. She now looked out at the columbarium and she said, you know, I miss my husband every day. He was such a good man. And I miss my son every day. I miss him. I loved him so much. But then she looked up and said, but I'm so grateful for the memories we have made. And now I just want to make myself self available to God for God to use me any way He wants to use me to bless life. So let me sign that book. She smiled. She handed me that book and she said, if there's anything I can do, you just let me know. I hope you have a great day. With such smile and compassion and composure, we walked on out. I couldn't help but think... That's what we're doing today. As a family of faith, we come together to remember and to give thanks for the memories we have made. For all those to whom we've had to say goodbye, we give thanks. And it's in the giving thanks that we find the strength to be able to make ourselves available to God to use us. For it's in the way that we live that we honor those who have died. We are the people of faith. And though we have said goodbye, we know there will be that day in the kingdom of heaven. And until then, we live in gratitude and we live with a commitment that we will honor those who have died by sharing God's love and bringing hope to the world. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.